We're in this series, The Gospel, where we're looking at the word, the gospel, and trying to figure out what does this really mean? What is the gospel? Now, if I interviewed most people today, what is the gospel? The answer I would get by most would be, it is the story of Jesus. The gospel is the story of what Jesus did on our behalf. But the question that I really uh, have, and the question that we've been looking at as a church, is what was the gospel when Jesus used the word? You see, for those of you that are new to Christianity, the New Testament portion of our Bible was written in the original Greek language. We have an English translation. And the Old Testament portion of our Bible was written in the original Hebrew language. Again, we have an English translation. And Jesus chose a very intentional Greek word to describe what he was about. And when Jesus used the word gospel, it did not mean the story of Jesus because his story was still being written. What's significant about this word, so here we have Jesus and his disciples, and it says they're going through all the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. What Jesus is saying by using this word and the authors by using this word is what we've come to start, what we've come to begin is not a religion, it is a gospel. Because if they were here to start a religion, they would have used a different word. There would have been a completely different word used if it was religion. What what they're saying is this is, in fact, the exact opposite of religion. I did not come to create a religion or start a religion or establish a new religion. I came to bring a gospel, and that's radically different. It's the very reason why the Roman Empire called those of us that are Christians atheists for the first 200 years. Because the claims that Christians made about God, no religion would ever dare say that. Like no religion would ever say the things about God that Christians said about God because Christianity is not a religion, it is a gospel. Now, I'll give it to you that there are many people in the world today that have taken Christianity and made it ugly. They've made it difficult, they've made it hard, they've taken something beautiful and they've actually turned it into a religion. And they've made kind of a Christian religion. But when you study the New Testament, when you study the gospel, it was never at all what Jesus intended it to be. And so what we want to know is what is the real gospel? What, what, did, what did Jesus come to start and establish? And one of the, the goals of this series is, I believe one of the biggest challenges of Christianity today is there's a lot of people that have the gospel here in their head. They just don't have it here in their heart. And I believe when the gospel moves from your head to your heart, it changes every aspect of your life. And that's what we're going to look at today. I found a story in the Bible, a character in the Bible, where I see that, that, that transition take place in one chapter of the Bible, and it's so clear the process and what happens when the gospel moves from just kind of logical information or intellectual ideas to an absolutely transforming heart experience. And so the title today is called The Gospel and Self. The Gospel and Self. How does the gospel impact you? How does the gospel impact self? And we could really go on and say selfish. Sociologists are telling us that we now live in one of the most self-absorbed cultures in the history of the world. Like we, we are so caught up in ourselves. In the whole social media, Instagram, Facebook world just feeds into the look at me. Like, I know everybody in the world, they have to know what I had for breakfast today. 
Like, I cannot live unless everyone knows what I had for breakfast because there are thousands upon thousands of people out there in my mind who really want to know what I do minute to minute throughout my day. And so they need to know what I've eaten for lunch and they need to know what I eat for breakfast. And, and they just got to know because it's all about me. Like, look at me, look at me. And that's what it, and again, I'm not against Instagram or Facebook. I have an Instagram and I enjoy, you know, celebrating family and, you know, letting people know what the kids are up to and they're doing and family that doesn't live in town. So I'm not against it. I'm just saying that it feeds into the self-absorption of the world that we live in, which when you think about it, there are people who kind of, you know, push back a little bit and say, wait a second. We live in a generation that's all about social causes and all about social justice and, and all about volunteerism. And, you know, it's not like the, the yuppie generation before us that was all about success and status and money and cars and designer labels. Like, we're all about social causes. But if you really look at it, like if you talk to psychologists and sociologists who are doing a lot of study about that today... We're not really into social causes to help people. We're into social causes because it makes us feel better. Let's be very honest. Like, it's a lot easier to raise awareness because I can put it on my Instagram and, and everyone can see what a good person I am. And I'm really honestly doing it for me than the cause that I'm all about. Like, how many of us really serve the poor for the sake of we care about poor people as opposed to how it makes us feel or how it makes us look. So even all of our social causes today, when you study it, is in just another form of self-absorption. So I want to I talk about how do we deal with just the selfishness of our life? How do we deal with this, this, this self-absorption that we're caught up to in the culture? Well, it comes to having a radical encounter with God. God changes everything. I'm telling you, when the gospel moves from your head to your heart, it changes everything, and we see this take place in the Bible in the life of Isaiah, the prophet. Isaiah was one of the major prophets in the Old Testament, major not because he was more important than the minor, minor prophets, just because his book was a lot longer. So we have the, the Old Testament prophet section is divided into, there's major prophets, minor prophets. Major prophets wrote books that are 50 chapters or more. Minor prophets wrote books that are around anywhere from two to three to 10 chapters. So that's what wasn't they were more important, they were just different in length. Isaiah was one of the major prophets, and in chapter 6 of Isaiah, we see this radical encounter he has with God, and we see how it transforms. We see how the gospel in his life moves from just this intellectual idea to a transforming experience of his heart. And I want to study that with you today. In verse 1 of Isaiah 6, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Isaiah comes face to face to God. Like he sees God high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. What I love about this is Isaiah goes to church like, like he had done many, many times, and the last person he expects to actually meet in church was God. And God shows up, like he, he's done this before, and now God shows up, and it's a whole different experience in the temple than he's ever had before. It says, above him were seraphim. Now, seraphim is a plural for seraph. Seraph, theologians say, are the highest order of angels in heaven. Seraphim just meaning more than one. Each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another. So these seraph were flying, and they were singing and calling to one another, holy, holy, 
Holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. At the sound of their voices, so here's what happens. The presence of God shows up. God fills the temple, and the doorposts and the thresholds shook. The entire building was shaken, and the temple was filled with smoke. And so we see Isaiah. He comes into this face-to-face encounter with God, the reality of God. So here's point one. Here's the first thing that happens when you have a God encounter is the reality of God will absolutely rock our world. God rocked his world. He was terrified. I mean, the whole building began to shake. It filled up with smoke. There's seraph flying. God's presence is there. The whole place just trembles, and Isaiah is terrified. His entire world is rocked. We talked about this a few weeks ago, the Mysterium Tremendum. Anytime you come face to face with the divine, you come encounter with God, it's not this warm, fuzzy feeling. It's absolutely terrifying when you come into the presence of the holy. It says the whole place was filled with God's glory. The Hebrew word for glory is kabod, literally translated is weight. It's talking about the weight of God, the weightiness of who God is. In other words, it's the permanent versus the temporary. It's the substantial versus the unsubstantial. God's weightiness compared to anything else in life or in the universe, God is permanent, God is real, and God matters infinitely more. Let me illustrate it like this. If I had you know, a bucket of water on this stage, and I had a brick or a rock or a stone, and I dropped that, that brick into the bucket of water. How many of you know the brick weighs more than the water, and it's going to cause the water to shake? The water will splash. It'll likely overflow. It'll likely you know, spill over the sides. It's going to create waves. Why? Because the brick has more weight than the water. If I took the same brick and I dropped it on a piece of ice... What would happen to the ice? The ice would crack, it would quake, it would, it would shatter, it would change. Why? Because the brick has more weight than the ice. In other words, the brick has more glory than the water, has more glory than the ice. The object has more glory. You see, when the full reality of God comes into your life, everything changes. Everything is rearranged. Why? Because God has more weight than your life. The reality of God, his glory in his presence, things begin to shake, things begin to quake, things begin to change. Every place in the Bible where God's presence shows up, his glory comes, there's a quaking that takes place because his glory is heavier than anything else. We see this on Mount Sinai with Moses. Moses goes up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, and God's presence shows up. It says Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. The whole place began to shake. It began to quake because God's presence is heavier. We see this in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when the, when the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, fills the room with the disciples. It says, suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house. The house began to shake, and they were, they were sitting there, and can you imagine how terrifying it would have been? You're, you're in this prayer meeting, and then all of a sudden, the building begins to shaking, and there's this violent wind coming into the room, and all of the windows are shut. 
Again, when God's presence shows up, God has more weight. You're going to see this again in your small group. I don't have time to go through all of them, but there's another one I put in your small group discussion guide that you can talk about this week in the book of Acts when God's presence shows up. And again, the whole place begins to shake, begins to move. Compared to God, everything else has no weight. Like Compared to God, everything else has no weight. In other words, there is a radical difference between God as a concept and God as a reality. See, you can believe in God as a concept, or you can actually have an experience in God's glory with the reality of God, the weight of God in your life, and everything begins to shake. You see, Isaiah, up until this point of his life, he believed in God as a concept. Like He knew of God. He was a good Jewish boy. He'd, he'd been to the temple many times. But something was different about this day. He shows up into the temple, and he walks into the reality of God. The glory of God fills the place. What was the difference? Well, again, it's all a matter of glory. You see, here's the difference. A concept is something that is lighter than you. A concept doesn't have any weight to it. Reality is heavier than you. So look at it like this. When you invite God into your life as a concept, you shape God into your life. God doesn't shape you. God doesn't move you. A concept doesn't change you or move you. You actually change it. God is a concept. doesn't change your beliefs. You simply fit God into your beliefs. If you look at your life from the moment before God, the moment after God, if no major beliefs in your life were shifted or changed, then you never really experienced the reality of God. You just invited a concept of God in your life, and nothing really changed. See, the truth is we like God as a concept. You know, we look at the universe and we say, well, somebody must have created this, so I'll believe in a creator. And I believe in, you know, good energy and a positive force in the universe. And you know, I want to go to heaven one day, obviously, if heaven and hell is real, then, you know, I want to make sure I end up on the right side of that. And so I'll accept God as this concept, but, I mean, come on, I'm not going to rearrange my beliefs for him. I'm not going to rearrange my priorities or my value. What we end up doing with God as a concept is we just fit him into our existing beliefs. And that's the culture of America today. We, we, we say things in America like, well... You know, I can't believe this part of the Bible or that part of the Bible because it's, you know, it's regressive. It's just, it's socially unacceptable now. Like, this is 2018. Things have changed. And that was written a long time ago. Truth is, you don't have God as a reality. You have him as a concept. You are shaping him. He's not shaping you. And we like God as a concept because the truth is we all have an agenda, don't we? We have, we have a goal in life, and I need a little something more to accomplish my goal. I mean, I, need, I, need, like, I don't have everything I need to accomplish my agenda, so I'll invite God as a concept because I need a little bit more. I want to be a better person, and so I'll go to church and learn how to be a better husband or learn how to be a better dad. And, and, and you know, God is a concept because I've got these goals that I'm trying to accomplish in life, and I just need a little bit more faith or a little bit more just to kind of you know, get me from here to there to, to accomplish the agenda of my life or the goals of my life. You see, God as a concept is lighter than you. God as a reality is heavier than you. When God becomes a reality in your life, here's what happens. Things you've believed, 
Things that you've even believed very deeply your entire life begin to be changed by his word. Why? Because his word has more glory than your personal beliefs. His word has more weight. So instead of trying to fit God into your agenda, God becomes your agenda. I mean, let's be honest. Our agenda, apart from God, is we just really want to have this nice, little, tidy, safe life, don't we? I mean, isn't, that's why we live in North County, isn't it? I mean, we just want to, you know, I want to raise my kids, and I want them to do well, and I want them to get through college, and, and I just, you know, I've got these goals in life where I want to, you know, retire one day, and I just, you know, I got this safe, nice, tidy little life that I've planned out, and that's basically my agenda. And so I'll go to church because, you know, if God as a concept can help me accomplish this, then I'm all about God. But you see, God as a reality is different. God comes along and says, I want you to sacrifice your individual needs, your individual goal, your, your agenda in life, because I am more real than your agenda. I am more real than your individual needs. And every single person who has ever met God is a reality. They're aware of the time where God moved from being a concept to a reality. Has that ever happened to you? Can you put your finger on when that moment... In other words, when did God become a reality in your life? When did, when did he move from a concept to a reality? And I know some of you would say, you know, well, I've never experienced what Isaiah experienced. Like, I've never walked into church and the place filled up with smoke and the building began to shake. Like, that's never happened to me. Well, it never happened to anyone else either in the Bible. See, you study the prophet Jeremiah, one of the other major prophets. In Jeremiah chapter 1, you can read his story of when God goes from a concept to reality. And it was a very different experience than what Isaiah experienced in chapter 6. You see, Jeremiah and Isaiah were very, very different people. Isaiah struggled with pride. He was one of the elite. He was part of the royal family. Jeremiah struggled with an inferiority complex. He had low self-esteem. So God shows up in Isaiah's life and he says, you need to start trembling. He shows up in Jeremiah's life and says, you need to stop trembling. Like, like, you're loved. Very, very different experiences, but the same thing occurs. God goes from a concept to a reality. Isaiah is going into worship, and he's shocked that he actually meets God. Because up until this moment, God's a concept. And when God becomes a reality in his life, everything in Isaiah's life begins to change. Everything he holds dear, everything he values. So let me ask you, where is God contradicting you? Because he will when he becomes a reality. Where is God changing you? Has God completely demolished and rearranged your friends, your values, your financial priorities? When has that happened to you? Because God will completely rock your world. And then here's the second thing that happens. Our self-image is completely destroyed. Like, I know this is not very encouraging to you, but this is what happens. Like, when God becomes a reality in your life, he shatters your self-image. Everything you thought of yourself is completely shattered. Like, it's destroyed. It's demolished. And we see this in Isaiah. You see, Isaiah shows up, and he's got the seraphim crying out and singing, holy, holy, holy. Repetition in the Bible is very, very significant. Oftentimes, you'll see in the Bible, a word in the, in the original text will be mentioned two times in a row to mean it's not just this, it's, it's this plus this. Let, let me give you an example. In Genesis 14, it says, and the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits. Now, when you read this in the Hebrew, it's pits, pits. It's, it's beer, beer. That, that's the two words. And it's repeated twice because these aren't just any pits. These are really bad pits. 
These are like the worst kind of pits. They're, they're not pits, they're pits, pits. And 2 Kings, talking about the gold, it says the gold, it was pure gold. And so again, it's, it's Zahab, Zahab. It's not just any type of gold, it's gold, gold. Meaning that it's not regular gold, it's gold, gold. It's better than just gold one time, this is gold twice. And so the Bible will mention the word twice to emphasize it. How many soccer fans do we have here? I love the, the English premiership. You know, I've been an Arsenal fan since I was little. And something very significant in soccer is when you win a double. The double is when you win your league cup and your, 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 uh, uh, the cup and the league trophy. That's the double, and that's impressive. But the most impressive thing you can do as a soccer team, everyone knows it, it's the treble. Like you get the Champions League, League, and Cup. I mean, very, very rare does that happen where one team will win all three, but it's exceptional. So what's happening here in the book of Isaiah is it's not a double, it's a treble. God isn't just holy. God is holy, holy, holy. Kadesh, 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 the Bible says. Meaning God is infinitely beyond, infinitely better than anyone or any. Thing. And the seraphim are just constantly singing his praises, holy, holy, holy. They're adoring his holiness. They're worshiping the, the beauty of his holiness and his holiness alone. Now, here's where this becomes very challenging for us. We don't really understand what it means to worship God's holiness. We, we really don't understand the difference between like worshiping God's power, worshiping God's mercy, worshiping his his holiness is hard for us to really grab a hold of. So let me, let, me, let me give you an illustration to help you understand what this means, to worship his holiness for his holiness alone. I want you to imagine for a moment that you've got family money. For whatever reason, you just got, you have, you just, you know, you're from that family and there's a lot of money that has been left in your name. And somebody finds out about it, and they decide they want to marry you. So they work themselves into their life, and they marry you, and you've now married this person. And, and after a couple years of marriage, they realize right away they're not getting their hands on that bank account. Like, yes, you have family money, but they don't have any access to it at all. And they leave you. How would you feel? You'd feel horrible, wouldn't you? Like they just married me for the money. When they realized they weren't getting any money, they were out the door. They never loved me. They just, they just wanted my money. Do you realize that's how the majority of us treat God on a regular basis? You see, we know God has this blessing bank in the sky somewhere. Like, we know there's this bank account in the sky that's full of blessings, and it's full of miracles, and it's full of healings, and so we come to God when we're in trouble because, you know, we know he's got this bank account up there full of all of this stuff, and so we pray, and we cry, and, and, and God, I need you to heal me, and God, I need you to do this, and God, I need this miracle, and then when God doesn't come through the way we want him to come through when God doesn't answer our prayer the way we want him to answer our prayer, what do we end up doing oftentimes? Get angry, get frustrated. I know people even leave the church because God didn't answer their prayer. What was going on? We married him for his money. We never loved God for God. We just wanted, we wanted to get our hands on that bank account in the sky. That's all we really wanted. And when we realized we weren't getting our hands on it, we're out the door. And yet that is how so many of us treat God. So here's the thing about God's holiness. This is why worshiping his holiness is so challenging. The seraphim are adoring his holiness for his holiness alone, not on the basis of some cost-benefit analysis. 
Because the thing you need to understand about God's holiness is it's not useful at all to you. There is no benefit of God's holiness to you. His holiness isn't going to change your life. It's simply beautiful. And they're worshiping his holiness not for what they get out of it, but for the beauty of it. It's, it's kind of the best illustration I can give you. It's kind of like music. We all like different types of music. I know I'm about to lose all of my respect and credibility I have, if I have any, with you by sharing this. But one of the things I like to do is when I'm, when I'm cooking at home, I, I love to listen to, like, I got on Spotify this, like, French cafe music. You know, like the stuff you hear in Paris out on the streets. Like, when I'm cooking, in the, I love the, like, French cafe music. I don't understand what they're saying, but I just, I, I like the way it sounds when I'm cooking. And I know none of you, like, my respect just dropped totally. And you ask, like, like, why do you like it? Does it benefit you at all? No, it doesn't benefit you. Does it make you money? No, it doesn't make you money. Does it help you accomplish your life agenda? No, it doesn't help me accomplish my life agenda. I just enjoy it because it's beautiful. Like, it doesn't help me at all. It doesn't further my cause. It doesn't help me accomplish my goals. I just enjoy it. And that's what the seraphim are doing. They're just worshiping him for his holiness for nothing at all out of it. You see, for us, it's easy to worship God for his power because... We like his power. We, we actually can worship him for his power selfishly because we need a miracle. We need a healing. And for us, we can worship God you know, for his wisdom because we need advice sometimes and we need direction in our life. So it can become very, very selfish. And we worship God for his mercy, but, but even that becomes selfish because I don't know about you, but I screw up all the time. And like I'm always depending on God's mercy. Like I need his mercy all the time in my life. And so even that becomes wor- uh, selfish but to worship him for his holiness, there's no benefit at all. It doesn't help you at all. And it's his holiness, when you study it, that shatters your self-image. It's his holiness that just destroys your self-esteem. See, it's God's holiness that makes it absolutely clear that you will never compete with God on any level. Like, he is so far infinitely greater, more powerful, more awesome than you will ever be, that it just, it shatters who you think you are. Look what happens to Isaiah. Isaiah gets in the presence of God. He hears the seraphim. First things out of his mouth, woe to me. Now, this is a big deal for a prophet. Anytime the prophet uses the word woe, that's the worst curse you can imagine saying. Like, I want you to think about the worst four-letter word you can imagine, and that's what he's saying. I'm whatever. You know what I mean? He gets in the presence of God, and that's how he feels. Like, woe to me. Woe to me. I cried. I am ruined. Like, I'm gone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He, he, he's rocked. I mean, his self-image is shattered. It's destroyed. And let me help you understand this. Th- this does make sense. Anytime, how many of you have ever been around somebody that made you feel insecure? Like at work, they hired a new, new guy who is a little younger than you, a little more talented than you, maybe went to a better school than you. And how does it make you feel about your job? A little insecure, doesn't it? Like, why did they hire him? Is he, is he taking my position? Are they, are they getting rid of me? Ever been around somebody better looking than you and, and, and you feel like, man, I just hate this person because they're so gorgeous. I mean, they just make me feel so insecure every time I'm around them. If that's how you feel in the presence of human greatness or just somebody that you think is better looking than you, more talented than you, more gifted than you, has more money than you, how do you think you'll feel around God? 
See, I saw this happen in Los Angeles all of the time. Like when I lived in LA for years as an associate pastor, we had kids all over America who came from these small towns, and in their small town, they were like the drama king of their high school drama department. Like they were, they were the lead role in all of their high school musicals and all of their high school plays, and everyone in their little small town said, you're so good looking, and you should go to Hollywood and be a movie star. You can make it. And then they move to Hollywood, and they look around and realize everyone around them is better looking, more talented, more gifted, and it traumatizes them. Because they come face to face with the reality of, I'm not as good as I thought I was. Like, I thought I was this, and all of a sudden, I realize I'm nowhere near that. That's what's happening to Isaiah here. You see, Isaiah was a very prideful man. Isaiah was part of the royal family. Historians tell us that Isaiah's father was brothers with King Uzziah, so Isaiah was the nephew to the king. He was part of the elite. Not only that, but Isaiah was an artistic and literary genius. I mean, think about it. When you've written a book that people 3,000 years later are still studying, you're gifted. And he's in a culture that values oral tradition, and he's one of the great orators of his time. And now to give you some context, King Uzziah has lived in seclusion for years because he, he violated God's law, and he went into the temple where he wasn't qualified, and he got leprosy, and so he's been living out in seclusion with leprosy, and the whole country is falling apart. And Isaiah's thinking to himself, you know, they're the reason everything's falling apart. If they would just give me a chance, I can fix things. Like, like my uncle would just get out of the way, and somebody will ask me for my... And isn't that how we always think? Like, none of us really think we're the problem, right? Like, we're not the problem, they're the problem. Like, every Republican in the room knows it's the Democrats that are destroying this country. And every Democrat in the room knows it's the Republicans destroying the country. I mean, it's like, we're, it's, it's never us, it's always them. And that's how Isaiah feels. It's not me. I'm not the reason the country is falling apart. I'm actually the one that can save the country. I can, I can help the country. And he gets into the presence of God. He gets around the holiness of God. And he realizes, wait a second, I'm the problem. I'm the problem. And look what he notices. I've got unclean lips. The one part of his life he's actually gifted in. The one part of his life he's actually recognizing, the one talent he has, he realizes it's nothing. Like his self-image is shattered. Every place in the Bible when people come face to face with God, when God moves from a concept to a reality, they start hating themselves. You'll see it in your small group this week in the life of Job, Peter. Peter is your type A, executive, wealthy, business owner. I mean, he lives in the prime piece of real estate in Capernaum. Peter is somebody. And all of a sudden, when he realizes who Jesus is, he says, he fell at Jesus' feet, knees, and, he, and said, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. I mean, this, Jesus is this rabbi from Nazareth. Peter is a big shot in Capernaum, and he's falling on his knees before him. Saying, you see how his self-image is shattered? And I know some of you are thinking to yourself, man, the, the, there's a real problem with this message. It sound, it, to, to me, it just sounds like these guys have low self-esteem. And I believe in a God of love, and so I don't think we should have low self-esteem. But just think logically about that for a moment. 
Like if all God was was love, let's just forget the holiness of God for a moment. Let's forget the justice of God, the wrath of God, the, the mercy of God, the grace of God. Let's just, let's, just, let's just pretend for a moment that all God is is love. If that's all he is. He is more infinitely loving than we will ever be. How would you feel, even if you are the most loving person on planet Earth, how would you feel in the presence of God? All of a sudden, your love in comparison looks like hatred. Like if you had to compare your love with God's love, who is, and it has to be this way if he's God. There's no other way to logically look at it. You would feel like the most unloving person. Your love would feel like hatred in comparison to the presence of his love. You see, when God moves from a concept to a reality in your life, here's how you begin to think, I am a sinner. I am not what I thought I was. I am lost, I am a sinner, and I need the grace of God. And if there's a real God, you would have to feel that way. It couldn't be any other way. And look, I know there's a lot of people that, that say today, I just don't think people should feel sinful. You just have never been in the presence of God. I mean, there's, there's no other way to feel. And again, th this, this isn't leading you to low self-esteem because when you study low self-esteem, low self-esteem is just another form of self-absorption. When you struggle with insecurity and low self-esteem, all that means is you're just thinking about yourself too much. It, it really is just another form of selfishness. You've got to stop thinking about yourself. So I want you to look at what happens in the story. As soon as Isaiah recognizes he's the problem, as soon as Isaiah realizes I'm the sinner, it says, one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal, fire, in his hand, which he had taken with thongs from the altar. Now, here's the problem. Every time you see fire in the Bible, it is always representative of God's judgment and God's wrath. Numbers 11 the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when God heard them, his anger was aroused and fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some on the outskirts of the camp. So I want, I want you to understand what's going on. Isaiah just realizes he's the problem. I'm the sinner. I am not what I thought I was this. I am nowhere near what I think I am. I am a sinner. I am the one that is a problem with this place. I live with a people of unclean lips, and now all of a sudden an angel is flying at him with fire. He knew this story. What do you think Isaiah is thinking right now? Like, let's be honest. Isaiah is thinking, I'm gone. I'm dead. God is about to end me. I am a sinner, and I deserve it. It's exactly what he's thinking. He has no idea what the angel is about, because up until this point in the Bible, fire never represents cleansing. It's always wrath, and it's always judgment. So as soon as the sting wears off and he realizes I'm not dead, God didn't kill me, it says, with it he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Again, that's the gospel. That's what we've been preaching week after week, the forgiveness of sins. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? One second after he realizes he's forgiven. One second after God cleanses him of his sin, God is looking for a partner. God is looking for somebody to join his cause. And when you go ahead and study it out, and we'll look at it in a moment, God basically says this job is going to be horrible. 
Like this is going to be the worst assignment anybody will ever volunteer for because you are going to preach the rest of your life and nobody will ever listen to you. Nobody will ever repent. Nobody will ever change. In fact, they're going to hate you for it. They're going to persecute you for it. They're going to beat you for it. So who am I going to send? Isaiah, after being radically encountering God, here I am, send me, I'll do it. I don't care what it is, I'll do it. Send me, I volunteer, I'll go for you. Which is amazing because a verse ago, he's saying, woe to me. Do you see how God radically deconstructs his self-identity and then reconstructs it in the same second? God demolishes his self-esteem and then puts it all back together. That's the power of the gospel. You see, the gospel is when you fully realize that I am a far worse human being than I ever imagined. Like, I am, I, I am far more evil and far more of a sinner than I ever possibly imagined. And at the very same time, I am far more loved and far more accepted than I ever hoped for. You see, when that takes place in your heart, it creates a radical boldness and a radical humility at the same time. Isaiah goes from, woe to me, I'm dead, I'm a goner, to here I am, send me, which brings us to the final thing that happens is we begin to take our true purpose. You see, up until this point, Isaiah is just kind of living for his own agenda. He's living for his own purpose, and he's, you know, he's using God to accomplish his life goals, but it was never about what did God want. It was about his position in the royal family. It's about what he could accomplish, what he could do, the, the comfort of his life. You see, when you encounter God, your self-image is radically shattered and radically destroyed, and then God rebuilds you in his image. That's why we say we live in Christ. And the natural response after radically encountering God is, here I am, send me, I don't care what it is, you don't even need to tell me first. Just The answer is yes, even before you give me the question. Like, I don't care what you're asking me to do, the answer is yes. Whatever you want me to do, yes. What happened in Isaiah's life? He realized God was more real than his needs. God had more weight than his agenda. And the weight of God moved him. Think about it like this. I want you to imagine for a moment that the distance between earth and the sun, 92 million miles, is represented with this piece of paper. So this paper is representative of 92 million miles, the earth to the sun. Now, if you go from planet Earth to the next nearest star, you would have to stack paper up 70 feet high. If this is the Earth to the sun, the next nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. Now, if you look at the diameter of the galaxy, just our galaxy, the Milky Way, just the diameter alone would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. Not feet, miles. I want you to imagine a stack of paper 310 miles high. That's the diameter of just our galaxy. Now, we know that the Milky Way is just, you know, it's just a speck of dust in, the, in comparison to the entire universe. Like the universe is so much more emancipated than just our galaxy alone. And the Bible says that Jesus holds the entire universe together with the power of his word or his little pinky. In other words, is that the type of guy you invite into your life to be your assistant? (laughs) 
I mean, think of the implications of that for a moment. Is that the type of guy you invite to fit into your agenda, help you accomplish your goals? See, a God like that demands me to be available to him, not the other way around. I build my life around him. He's in charge. He's number one. He's the priority. See, when God becomes real, this is how you live. Now, am I perfect? Have I ever failed? Have I ever like, not lived up to my... All the time. But here's what's different in my life. There is this unescapable, unavoidable, guiding principle of my heart that God is priority that he holds more weight, that, that here I am, send me. I haven't even given you the job description yet. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's going to be horrible. No one's ever going to listen to you. Don't care. If you want me to do it, I'm doing it. It's not going to benefit you at all. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Isaiah realizes that his needs are not as important as God. His agenda is not as important as God. He doesn't serve God for individual fulfillment. He doesn't serve God because it's convenient or easy. Have you ever wondered why we do it that way? Like, let's just be, this is just family, let's be honest for a moment. Why do we serve God that way? Think about it like this. Instead of scheduling our dream team service around our travel plans, why not arrange our travel plans around our dream team schedule? Instead of giving money that I'm not really going to miss and it's really not going to affect my lifestyle all that much, why not be so generous that it actually changes the way we live our lives? Why not give in such a way where we actually have to change our lifestyle to be able to do it? Like, I cannot live the way I want to live to be able to give the way I want to give. Have you ever wondered why we don't live this way? See, do you see this happening in Isaiah's life here? I mean, this is the most radical transformation we see in the Bible. God going from a concept to a reality, the gospel moving from his head to his heart. And God outlines the mission. He says, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding. In other words, they're never going to understand anything you preach. Like You're going to preach the rest of your life, they're never going to get it. Be ever seeing but never perceiving, they're, they're never going to see it. Make the heart of this people callous, make their ears dull, and close their eyes. Do you know how frustrating it would be to have this job? Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their hearts, and understand with their hearts, and, and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long? How long do I got to do this, God? Like, I can understand, like, putting up with this for a week or two, but, but how long? God goes on to say, it's going to be the rest of your life. You're never going to see a change. You're never going to see a change. He answered, until the cities lie ruined without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted, the fields are ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But here's the good news. As the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. In other words, Isaiah, you're never going to see this. I'm asking you to do something for me. It's not going to benefit you at all. I'm going to leave a seed. Something's happening. And it, it, it's going to help me accomplish my agenda. There will be a seed. You're never going to see it. You're never going to benefit from it. You're going to live the rest of your life in misery for me. You're going to preach, and no one's going to listen to you. 
And Isaiah, here I am, send me. Why? Because he realized the weight of God was heavier than him. God's weight was heavier than his agenda. God's weight was heavier than his comfort. God's weight was heavier than his lifestyle. I'm telling you, this is the reality of the gospel. And anyone that comes face to face with the reality of God, this is the natural response. Like when you understand what it means to be a sinner and separated from God and how nothing you will ever do will ever be good enough for his acceptance. And then at the very same time, you understand how much God loved you, that he sent his son to pay a price that you couldn't pay and out of grace, God saves you. How else would you respond? Let's be honest. God's not a concept anymore. God's not lighter than you. He's not, he's not this force that will help you accomplish your agenda and your safe, tidy little life. He becomes a reality, and you begin to realize the weight of who he is. I mean, again, universe, 310 miles high. That's not the type of guy you invite to be your assistant. It's the type of guy you lay your life down and say, and say you are in charge. You are real. And you live your life knowing that it will not be in vain. Isaiah, you're never going to see it, but something's happening. You're never going to experience it, but something's happening. You're never going to benefit from it here on earth, but something's happening. This is the way we serve God. This is the way we give Him our life. And this is the only natural response from the gospel. Now, let me, let me, let me help you with this a little bit. Because you could walk away from this message and you can filter it religiously and go try to fix some things in your life. It's not going to work. Don't, don't turn this into religion. You don't go try to fix it to make this work. You, what you really need to do is go ask God for an encounter of his reality. To feel the weight of who he is. That's what you need. You don't, you don't need to go like try to clean up your life to make it look like you're doing all of this because that's religion. You need the reality of God to hit you in such a way where your natural response is, here I am, send me. Whatever you want. Whatever you, whatever you ask. I don't even need to know up front. You just tell me. You, you, you just say you need me and I'm going and you can tell me later what it is. Because your weight is more than me. And that's the natural response. So for some of you, you just need to get alone this week and just think about the reality of God. And just, just ask him to give you that, that, just, that realization of who he is. And I don't know if your house is going to start shaking and fill with smoke. I, I, it didn't happen that way for me. But I know the moment it moved from concept to reality, and I was changed. I was changed. Would you close your eyes with me for a moment? Holy Spirit, as always, I ask that you do what I cannot do. I cannot intellectually help people understand who you are you are so much more infinitely greater than my words like I, i'll never be able to paint a picture adequately to describe the reality of who you are i just i pray from the story of isaiah that we'll hunger for it and allow you to do it so holy spirit i ask that for many people in the room who at this moment in their life like isaiah they're here because god's a concept and I just pray that sometime this week the reality will set in. And God will move from a concept to a reality in their life. Something that is lighter to something that is heavier. And they will see a shaking 
a shaking of their priority, a shaking of their friendships, a shaking of their values, a shaking of how they spend money. They will be a shaking that happens in their life because when something heavier comes in, nothing else can stand its ground. And I pray that it'll take place in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you're here this morning and you want to take a step for Jesus, whatever that looks like, maybe a small step, and that's, that's what I would encourage you to do is just take a small step towards Jesus today. Just make a decision for him. What I've done is I've made a very short video, it's about two minutes long, that just explains what it means to take a small step towards Jesus. What does it mean to give him your life and, and make him Lord and follow him? And you can get that video by simply texting I decide to 555-888 and you'll get it right on your phone. So instead of having any type of you know, connection card today or any type of paper transaction, you can just text that number and text I decide and you'll write on your phone, get a two minute video that explains what does it mean to walk towards Jesus? What does it mean to take a step? What does it mean to make a decision? And then again, if you're visiting our church today and something struck a chord and you're kinda, you want more information, you want to get to know a little bit more, make a decision on, on whether or not this is a good fit for you, you can text the word coastline to the same number and you'll get a video right on your phone that just talks a little bit more about who we are as a church, why we are as a church, how we are as a church. And if you're looking for more information or how to get involved, uh, all of that is clear on that video, and you'll get it right on your phone. You can watch it at your own time. Would you stand with me? We're going to leave today just with the song of worship, and we'll be out of here.